Slavery is back. Welcome to a place where private business profit from a captive labour force, yet pennies are spent on medical services to a population in which the Indigenous, the poor and the mentally ill are overrepresented. Where isolation, humiliation and degradation are facts of life. Welcome to prison. It depends who's telling the story, I suppose. The prisoners would have one view. The people who work in the prison system would have another. And I think it's up to people to decide uh, where the truth is. Give government propaganda and the media spin doctors the flick. And check out Doin' Time for news, views and tunes on prison issues from Guantanamo Bay to Christmas Island to prisons and detention centres everywhere. Every Monday at 4pm on your community radio, 3CR. We are still fired up and we're still talking about revolution. Hello and welcome to the Doing Time Show. This is 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM on the dial, streaming live on www.3cr.org.au. And a warning that this episode of Doing Time contains audio images of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who have died. I'm actually doing the show from home today. My name is Marissa and I'll be taking you through until 5 o'clock this evening. I thought I would take a precaution and stay home given that I have been in quite a few crowded environments and there have been some people who have had corona around. So here we are. Reminds me of lockdown. No. <laughs> First up on the show, I will bring you an interview with Nicole Lee, President of People with Disability Australia, PWDA, which wholly condemns the anti-trans rally and hate speech held outside the Victoria Parliament last weekend and stands in solidarity with the trans and gender diverse community along with Equality Australia in calling out this hateful vilification. We will speak to Nicole about this and much more. Then we will hear from Ian Rintel from the Refugee Action Coalition about refugee and anti-war rallies planned for Palm Sunday 2nd of April 2023. Finally, we will hear from Black People's Union, First Nations President and Kieran Stewart Asherton, who will talk about the Voice to Parliament and offer other solutions and speak about the opposition to the Voice. I'm hoping to also talk with him about what he thinks about treaty as well. I'd like to begin Nicole's interview by bringing the attention of listeners to a quote from People with Disability Australia's media release. We will speak with Nicole shortly, but she says, we stand with statements and support from others around the country, calling for an urgent need for Victoria and other jurisdictions to expand anti-vilification laws to cover LGBTIQ people, including those at the intersections of gender, disability, race, faith, ethnicity, and trans and gender identity. Now, before I welcome Nicole, I'd like to apologise for any mispronunciations um, of, uh, of any terminology, and I can certainly ask Nicole to correct me on that. So I'd like to welcome... PWDA President Nicole Lee to the program. Hello. Not yet. Oh, <laughs> oh okay. are you there? Yes, I'm here now. 
The beauty of doing the show from home, Nicole. <laughs> <laughs> All, good. All good. Now, I can barely hear you. Is, is there a way you can... Hang on. I will... Is that better? That's absolutely fine. Thanks, Nicole. Oh, okay. Cool. Mm-hmm. Okay, so really I was just... Um, you would have heard my intro. Yes. So I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about, a bit about what's been going on and just give us a little bit of background. What happened at this rally? Describe it. Well, um, well, I'm sure if anybody was on Twitter that um, saw a lot of the videos that were being circulated around, is that this mm. rally... Oh, you there? Yep. Yep, sorry. Yeah, the, the rally in Victoria was um, sort of, you know, they were supported by um, you know, neo-Nazi uh, representatives that came along to the rally and, 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 and backed, you know, this you know, so-called woman agenda and female agenda and this let women speak or whatever, you know, kind of... Um, I can't remember her tagline, Posey Parker. Oh. Um, and, and we saw police pushing back on um, the trans activists and allies who were there to defend trans rights and defend, you know, trans people's safety. And they were actively pushed back and, in, you know, and police stood back and allowed, you know, Nazi um, supporters or I don't even know what you want to call them, um, bigots... Uh, racist, bigots, repulsive, you know, um, behaviour to go unchallenged and to make, you know, Heil Hitler salutes whilst carrying a banner. I'm not even going to repeat what was written on that banner around, you know, um, you know wanting, you know, calling for you know, the, the, the death of, of, of trans people, essentially, but a lot more um, disgusting and graphic than that. But such an ugly display of transphobia and racist ideology, it, it really beggars belief, doesn't it? It's shocking to think that that's happening in our society, that that's happening right now in 2023 in our society when, you know, we look at all of the things, especially like for any state or country, you know, it's kind of the sort of thing we expect to see in other countries like the US, but to see that happening on our own soil is a really, really disturbing turn of events. And, you know, if we're not actively calling this out, then what side of humanity are we sitting on? You know, if you can sit there and justify that kind of behaviour, then you need to really, really question, you know, where are your moral and and where is your, you know, ethical compass pointing? So let's get this straight, Nicole. So basically this was was an anti... This was an anti-trans... Rally, right? Yes. Correct. Yes, it was an anti-trans rally, and we had Nazi sympathisers there, you know, protecting Posey Parker apparently, and in support of her, and in support of anti-trans. She later on came out and said that they weren't with her, and she didn't agree with them being there. But at no point during the rally did she call them out in any of her speeches and say that they're not with us. You know, she was quite happy to have them there supporting her at the time during it actually unfolding. And when was this? This was two weeks ago, wasn't it? Oh, God, I can't remember. Yeah, I think it was last weekend. That's right, it was two weeks ago, I believe, on yeah. a Saturday, on the steps yeah. of Parliament. On the steps of Parliament House. Um, and, you know, we, and this Premier, I will uh, give him the credit in that he did very swiftly come out in opposed to what happened and condemned what happened. But to really back that up, like we're saying, is to tighten the anti-vilification laws so that these things cannot happen again. You know, protect the community and make these laws stronger and more usable so that, you know, this kind of hate speech cannot go, you know, without... Um, you know, without consequences. You know, this whole idea of freedom of speech, but you're not free from consequences of that so-called freedom of speech. You're not, 
you don't have the right to go around and cause active harm to people, emotional harm to people, to make young trans kids scared to go to school. And that's what we've, I've seen anecdotal evidence of out there from people I know and people on Twitter, that their children are scared to leave the house and go out in public because they don't know who is there or, or what hate they're going to encounter. So we really need to call upon state and federal governments, don't we, to strengthen legal protections? Yes, absolutely. We have to call on state and federal and, and you know, state and territory governments to start looking at their laws, looking at where the flaws are and tightening those laws, but doing that in conjunction with the community that they're trying to protect with those laws as well. So, you know, doing that without consultation isn't appropriate either, but we need them to start looking at that and doing that ASAP as a matter of urgency because this... Um, there's a fear that this is only going to get worse, that this is just the beginning of much greater um, hatred out there in the community. You know, we've seen this sort of rhetoric building online, but to see it actually play out on the street is, in the, is the next level again. It really is. And, and really looking, you know, at the intersections of gender and, and disability, because I know, like, this is People with Disability Australia. How would mm. disability come into this? Well, people with disability you know, also identify as trans and gender diverse people and with the LGBTIQA plus community. So, you know, and for a lot of us with disability, we don't get a lot of choices in what happens to ourselves, our bodies and our lives. Um, you know, we don't get a lot of choice around how we want to express our gender identity. So, you know, it's harder for a lot of disabled people to come out as um, trans or gender diverse or even as um, queer. And so, you know, um, displays like this on the weekend, you know, it affects all communities, not just the disability community. But, you know, if you start adding in layers like disability and race and culture, you know, to be able to express yourself becomes much harder and harder. And we need to be looking at ways in which we can protect those communities, you know, more than others, you know, so that we get this equity versus just equality. You know, some of us need, you know, added protections around ourselves and our identities so that we can get to the same level as, of equal and safety as others in the community. I wanted to ask you something that yeah, I, I don't think it, it goes against um, your organisation. It's just something that's not really discussed in mainstream media too much. And it's really in regards to Nazis and, and Hitler, Nazism. Mm -hmm. And it's quite sinister in that I wonder whether there's an underlying thing here wrapped up in this hate speech that people with disability and also people with um, different sexual orientations are imperfect? Well, yeah, it is. Well, that's one of the things that the Nazis did do. They targeted, you know, not just, um, you know, the, the Jewish community, but they also targeted and they labelled people who were queer with different coloured triangles. You know, with the pink triangle, um, they labelled disabled people with the black triangle. And before they even... Um, you know, the war began and they started attacking and, and, and rounding up, you know, Jewish people. They perfected their method of, of eradicating people through, like, eugenics. They rounded up disabled people and they, start, and they eliminated them. Um, and that was one of their testing grounds. It's something that isn't spoken of very often and it's something that, you know, is very deeply, deeply distressing for the disabled community and, and for anybody that was affected via the Holocaust. Um, you know, it's quite horrific that, you know, a group of people that protest to uphold that just unbelievable atrocity is, is 
is unfathomable in this day and age that that was allowed to that display was allowed to happen. Absolutely, because it is relevant today. You have a lot of a lot of um, organisations, some organisations say, oh, but that's the past, you know, some people say. But it's not the yes. past. It's no, no, today. it's not the past. Yeah, that's exactly right. It is relevant today. It's not the past. We're still seen as not good enough or there's something wrong with us or that we, you know, we don't feel included. And displays like this just really reinforces, you know, that especially for the trans and gender diverse community, that we're not welcome, we're not included. And, you know, and, and this is a danger to... You know anybody who isn't you know part of their rhetoric? Absolutely, and I really wanted to mention that Nicole, the the imperfection stuff that the the Nazis, you know, go on about, and and indeed that what happened during the the Holocaust is is linked to today. Mm. Haven't haven't you noticed that since the pandemic, that all of this is coming more to the forefront now? Yes, yeah, well, we have. When you just look at some of the um, things that you know, the government has done around loosening of COVID protections, um, which has put a lot of uh, disabled people, chronically ill and older people in danger without any thought of how can we um, give freedom back to the community whilst actually keeping the community safe. I mean, all of those discussions have completely gone out of the window and it's absolutely disappointing to see that Albanese, the Albanese government, who stood in that parliament and said that, and was quite strong against the Liberal government and their you know, lack of COVID protections to then come into government and then remove all COVID safety measures. And we're still in the middle of COVID. We're still you know, being impacted by this. It's not going away. Yet it's sort of well, what value is being put on our lives. And it feels like we're not actually worth saving at this point in time. You know, I'm scared to think that there's been a cost analysis done around... Um, you know, what's the cost of keeping our lives versus what's the cost of the economy or, or letting us go? Really, like, You know, we can't help but think these things. So whether or not that's true, I, I can't actually stand by that statement. No, but it's, it's, it's very We feel unwelcome. And disabled yeah. people with the pandemic, you know, we've had people, you know, yell at us, um, you know, blame us for being the ones that caused the lockdowns or, you know, I've had people cough in my direction because I'm wearing a mask in public. I've had people spit at me. I've had people laugh at me. You know, other disabled people have been laughed at and told they're wearing a face nappy. I mean, this, oh. it's, it's disgusting, you know, and, and, and this hatred that is coming out. So it didn't come from nowhere. It means it's always been there and we need to do a lot of work in this country around shifting community attitudes towards people that they don't see, you know, that, that don't fit you know, the white, able, straight, um, you know, cisgendered person. You know, Nicole, it's true, and I'll tell you something. I don't know whether you heard my intro, but I stayed home today because I was I was in very crowded settings over the weekend, and you know, there were there were people with with corona, and I wanted to stay home. Yeah, well, it, it's not that hard to do something to protect the people around you. It's, you know, it's just really sensible, simple, common sense measures is all people are asking for and things like clean air standards as well. So, you know, it's an invisible measure that nobody would even know existed, wouldn't know it was happening. It's a bit like we have clean water standards around, you know, making sure that drinking water is not dirty or contaminated or is going to make people ill. We have legislation around that, so why can't we have legislation around clean air quality uh, standards for, you know, enclosed and, you know, you know places like shopping centres and hospitals and, and schools? So, you know, there's measures that can be taken, yet it's just uh, you know, alarming is probably the best word, and disappointing that those 
those measures aren't being taken. And I just don't understand why, other than are we just not welcome in this in, in, in today's society? And, and like I said before, we can't help but think that. It's, I'm so glad that we've discussed all this because it really is relevant in many ways to what happened at the rally. This, this is all connected. There is one bit of good news, though, isn't there? Apparently in New Zealand, wasn't, there wasn't such a high turnout, was there? No, well, in New Zealand, apparently I saw the, um, some news footage of that around that she was, that not many people, no, no one turned out to support her. Everybody turned, most people turned out to support um, the trans and gender diverse community and, you know, and to the point where she left the country um, because, you know, there was nowhere for her to actually have a platform. And that's what I would have expected to have seen here. You know, would like to have seen that happen here. What New Zealand did is what should have been happening here. You know, I, I jokingly said to someone, I, you know, I guess it's time to move to New Zealand then, isn't it? Um, but, but, yeah, that's, that's, that's what I expected my community to do and to see, you know, that display happen. And, and to everybody that turned out and to everybody who did go out in, in support of the trans and gender diverse community in the face of, of that, um, you know, disgusting display, you know, hats off to everybody and thank you so much for, for doing that. Um, that we need allies in this space. You know, it's not just up to the trans and gender diverse people to defend themselves. You know, that, you know, the community needs allies around them as well, saying, we support you, you're safe, we're here with you and you're not alone in any of this and we're not going to stand by and allow this to happen without being challenged. Nicole, thank you so much for coming onto the program. It was lovely to have you. And yeah, I wish you could have been under better circumstances, but yes, thanks. I wish, but we, we'll have you back on very soon, I hope. Yeah, great. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks a lot. Bye. Take care. Bye. You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR. The Common Social Change Library is an online collection of educational resources for those campaigning for social change. It collects, curates and distributes the key lessons and resources of progressive movements around Australia and across the globe. The library includes over 500 resources covering campaign strategy, community organising, activist history, digital campaigning, diversity and inclusion and much, much more. It's free to access the library, so check out the collection at www.commonslibrary.org. Common Social Change Library is a 3CR supporter. And in case you've just tuned in, this is the Doin' Time Show, 3CR Community Radio, Radio 855 AM on the dial, streaming live on www.org.au. And you just heard an interview with Nicole Lee, President of People with Disability Australia, um, speaking about an anti-trans rally. And next up, we're going to be speaking with Ian Rintel from the Refugee Action Coalition. Preparation, preparations are underway for this year's Palm Sunday, 2nd April, pro-refugee and anti-war rallies in every capital city and many regional towns. And there's a full list that Ian will talk about. The rallies are demanding permanent visas for all refugees and no war. Hello, Ian. Welcome to the program. Yeah, hey, Marissa. How are you doing? Oh, it's pretty awful weather. But <laughs> <laughs> oh, OK. I'm doing yeah. OK. Now, Ian, um, can you just talk about the latest media release and give us some background about the rallies and why they're happening? And in particular, 
Um, can you talk about the permanent visas and also what's happening with the the submarines? Yes, this, uh, I can try and pull that all that, that together. Um, yeah, Palm Sunday, uh, of course, I mean, over the last few years has been, you know, the day, of the you know, main focus of the refugee movement in the capital cities. There are plenty of other protests which happen, but, uh, you know, Palm Sunday, uh, which is uh, Sunday before uh, Easter, has, you know, has seen the major refugee rallies over the last few years. And, uh, and it will be the same again this year, I think, although... Um, this year, because of the AUKUS announcement about the submarines, I think we're likely to see uh, quite a few more people actually turn out to the, you know, to the rally. More specifically, over the over the nuclear submarines, I think that sent a that sent a, a you know like a shockwave. I think even through the you know the pro labour uh, supporters, uh, that that the Labor government would be spending you know, such a huge amount of money, 368 billion. Uh, on uh, you know, on nuclear nuclear submarines, and uh, so I think it's it's set off a bit of an opposition uh, movement already. But um, for you know, like for the refugee movement, uh, it's still a major focus uh, because there's so much unfinished business with with the Labor government. Sixth uh, of March, uh, we had you know over a thousand refugees on the lawns of Parliament House. Uh, again, in uh, you know, in Canberra, including several uh, several hundred from you know, from Melbourne, there were you know, great contingents of people who came from Melbourne to that uh, to that protest. Uh, quite uh, several hundred of them stayed on actually and were protested for the whole week of the uh, the uh, first week of March uh, parliamentary sittings. So um, I, I think it's just one indication of just how angry a big section of the refugee community in Australia has been left by Labor's announcement that only 19,000 people who were on temporary visas are going to get permanent. Uh, but there's uh, that that number, and, and more actually, again, who are on bridging visas or community detention uh, or people still in detention, actually, uh, leaving aside, the, you know, the without you know, talking about the people who are still on Madison Nauru, uh, that the Labor government really has not done anything you know, about so um, they, those they were there on you know six March in uh, Canberra um, for very vigorous protests and I think we'll see you know refugee contingents in uh, bigger numbers at the Palm Sunday rallies this this coming Sunday. Wow! So tell me about the anti the you know the no war thing because I I think a lot yeah. of we need to really talk to listeners about that and because there's been a lot of things in the mainstream media that it is okay to get these nuclear submarines? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, some of the, some of the media has just been, you know, like, well, it's, it's shockingly pro-war, but, pro, yeah. pro but uh, yeah, we saw The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald uh, with their red alert, um, you know, editions, so sort of, you know, maybe it's a week or two ago now, maybe yeah, just not last week, the week before. But that was just shocking, just just pro-war propaganda, which I think is one of the things which shocked, uh, you know, like many people uh, uh, who, you know, fancy themselves to the left and centre, I suppose, or look to the age of Sydney Morning Herald as representing something better than Murdoch. But um, on that particular issue, um, it um, there wasn't, you know, anything anything on offer. In fact, uh, quite the, you know, quite the contrary. They copped a lot of flack for that, uh, but I think that that the fact that they copped the flack is is just an indication of just how much uh, concern you know, has been generated by Albanese's announcement. I mean, the fact that Keating came out with the with the spray that he gave uh, you know, Albanese and uh, Penny Wong and anyone else uh, who was you know uh, inclined to support the subs 
from the Labor side of politics, but uh, there's a big meeting in Marrickville in Sydney, uh, just across the road from <laughs> Alexander Albanese's electorate office, actually, at the uh, Marrickville Town Hall, you know, around 400 people there, uh, not last Sunday, Sunday before, and uh, Bob Carr, also from the right of the party, like Paul Keating, but, and, uh, and a former foreign minister, uh, who talked about, you know, some of the briefings that he'd got from, you know, foreign affairs when he was the foreign minister in the, uh, the what, the mid, you know, t- mid, 2010, I think 2012 might have been when he was last foreign minister. But uh, I think people have been particularly shocked both at the scale, you know, the 368 billion, uh, but also what it's actually going to mean, like the massive, you know, rearmament, the the, the uh, you know the creation of uh, bases on the east coast or the before the nuclear, you know, submarines, the fact that they, the submarines are, they're an offensive weapon. Um, you know, Richard Miles has come out subsequently to try and say they're just going to, you know, whatever, you know, cruise around the, you know, around the trading routes. But you don't have nuclear submarines armed with cruise missiles uh, that are that are capable of striking 1,500 kilometres away to pretend to, to protect your trade routes. So there's no hiding the fact that, you know, the nuclear submarines are part of, you know, Albanese adopting, you know, Morrison's, you know, uh, initiative, um, taking it to heart, and Australia now, I mean, it always has been a part of the military adventures of the United States, you know, around the world, but um, this really takes it to another level of partnership between the UK, US and Australia, you know, really puts Australia on the, you know, in the forefront of actually trying to um, you know, encircle, you know, China. And um, and the cons- one of the consequences we do see is there's more and more talk about, you know, a, you know, a coming war with China, which I think everyone has got an interest in um, in opposing. And, of course, we make the connection all the time between the wars that we've already been in, uh, you know, Afghanistan, Iraq, uh, which have, you know, generated refugees, which, you know, the Australian government is not willing to, you know, properly protect. It's so important, isn't it, for listeners to be able to get up-to-date and accurate information about China and what's going on. And, you know, are there such forums? I mean, how can we really get access to timely information? Well, uh, there, there are there are now... Um, I haven't got the details in front of me, Marissa, but um, I can probably get them to you. But there are, there are you know, anti-AUKUS committees in uh, most of the capital cities now um, and that have started to be get you know, more active. Like in Sydney, it was, um, you know, that anti... Oh, well, I think in Melbourne, actually, two Sundays ago, there was actually a protest, about 400 people uh, in Melbourne that were organised by the anti-AUKUS committee in Melbourne. Um, so, you know, there's certainly... You know that that level of activity is starting to you know ratchet ratchet up. Um, I I actually spoke with some people from uh, you know Port Kembla, Wollongong, who uh, looked like that's one of the places where they're talking about building a base. Um, they're already you know calling a uh, an, an anti an anti base uh, protest uh, on the fourth of April in Port Kembla. So uh, I think if people look, you know, maybe if they just googled, googled anti you know anti AUKUS, they might find the uh, you know some details of the you know, of the, of the committees. They're not, they're not really prominent yet, but for any of your listeners, I think probably the best thing is to get along on Palm Sunday. I'm sure there's going to be anti-AUKUS material at the uh, Palm and Sunday where, Can you just talk about that? Where, can you talk about some of the rallies around Australia and where they're going to be? Yeah, just so I'll, yeah, yeah, I'll have to. I mean, the one I know, um, the one I know is immediately about is Sydney, obviously. That's sure. in, uh, yeah, that's, that's going to be in, um, 
sorry, sorry, that's going down Belmore Park at uh, you know two at two o'clock, and uh, I'll just get the I can find the. Oh, here's in, one in Canberra. Palm Sunday yes, Rally permanent visas for all Sunday second April, one yeah, p.m. Mel- yeah, Melbourne. I think it's uh, one one thirty at the State Library. Yeah, that's Sunday second of April, one thirty at the State Library. Uh, and I think in so, Canberra is at Garima Place Civic, the Civic Centre, I believe. Yeah, yeah that's right. One, yeah, yeah, that's where it takes place. Yeah, so in all the uh, in all the capital cities, there'll be uh, there'll there'll be rallies. Uh, Brisbane, it's two o'clock in King George Square. Uh, Perth, it's one o'clock at uh, St George's Cathedral in the in the city. There's even a small one in uh, in, in Hobart happening, which is great. Um, but there's also, you know, a lot the the um, the rural Australians for refugees and the um, Australian Refugee Action Network is you know organising a lot of things in. So there's Wollongong, Newcastle, the Blue Mountains, yeah. you know, Ballarat, Bendigo, Wontaggi. There's quite a few uh, that for people to you know for people to get to. So and like I said, I think it's just going to go up. I think for two for those two reasons we've discussed for. There are so many refugees who have been left behind, and I think the if you, the, the discrimination, for want of a better word, against them, the fact that they've seen the government grant 19,000 people permanent uh, visas, which is great, but other people have got nothing, and I think that that's really has um, you know awakened kind of uh, well you know poured acid on their sense of injustice, I guess, and much more willing, I think, to you know to advocate for themselves, to push for the you know, the the uh, permanent security that, that they need as well. So on the 12th of February, the government granted permanent visas to 19,000 mm. refugees in Australia, but left an even bigger number, um, those on bridging visas and who've been rejected under the fast-track system and others yep. behind. Yeah, yeah, that's... That? Yeah, yeah. Well, see, I think that's what really is fueling the, the, you know, the massive, you know, discontent that saw the protests at Parliament House. Like the, the, the Labor Party policy is, and you know, statements from Giles himself, you know, recognises that the fast track system that was introduced by, you know, by Morrison uh, was a, a system designed to fail. You know, people. It was. It meant that the big numbers of people, including, you know, Afghans, uh, but, you know, Tamils, uh, you know, were very, very, very high numbers. And probably in terms of ethnic groupings, um, the Tamils were probably the largest number of people proportionally who were failed under the, you know, under the fast track, you know, system. But it's Iranians and Iraqis, it's, you know, Rohingyas, it's, uh, you know, Afghans have all, you know, suffered similarly because of the, you know, the fast track system. But the government actually hasn't, you know, abolish the fast track system, um, but on the one hand, it's recognised you know that it's that it's flawed. You know, so that uh, the policy said that they are going to abolish it, but in practice, they've done nothing uh, to assist uh, the the people who who have been failed, have been rejected by the you know fast track. So you've got ten thousand people who've been rejected by the fast track system. Uh, you know, our claim is that. Look, they've been here. Many of them have been here for ten years anyway, only to be rejected by the fast track system. They should get permanent visas, um, and uh, but at the very least, the government should be talking about a process of properly reviewing all those cases uh, in light of their, um, you know, their treatment, you know, at the hands of the fast track system, and in many cases, the changed circumstances. I mean, it's one example I use all the time, but I could you could talk about Iraq or. You know, Sri Lanka, but the fact that we've got you know Afghans on bridging visas uh, who failed under the fast track system because they were told 
uh, well, you might be a refugee, you know, sort of in Ghazni, in, you know, in central Afghanistan, but the, you can go to Kabul. You know, Kabul's safe. So, uh, as far as we're concerned, uh, you're, you know, you're failed. Now, nobody's going back to Kabul, you know, since the uh, rise of the, you know, takeover of Afghanistan by the, by the Taliban. Um, the government's not going to send anyone back. In fact, you know, we, as, you know, there's, well, there's a problem about the, num- the numbers that they've actually bought since the Taliban have taken over again, but <clears throat> they're certainly not going to be sending any back. So why why can't they just look at all the Afghans who are still on bridging visas or community detention? Why have we still got Afghans who are actually in closed detention in the mainland detention centres? And there are some still in closed detention, in, uh, not, not closed, in not closed detention, but I mean, in detention on Nauru and, uh, you know, in PNG. Uh, then that's just one, you know, simple, you know, so, simple case. But you could apply that to, you know, to the Iraqis, to uh, the, uh, the to the Tamils. It's the same situation. You've got you know, a flawed process, um, which is like, you know, in, in, in terms of the straight out justice, you couldn't actually properly appeal. There was no merits appeal um, to in, under the fast track system. And of course, the country situation has changed in most, if not all, of those countries, uh, which needs to be taken uh, into account. So, But they've all just been left, um, and many of them now, it's 10 years, 12 years, where they've not been able to support their families, um, they've not been able to see children, children have grown up, they've not been able to get training, you know, they've been constrained about the jobs that they can get because they're on... You know, the, the visa has to be renewed, you know, every six months. They're not allowed to, not allowed it's to study. It's a terrible They're, thing, Ian. Yes, it's created, a, it's created a very, very vulnerable, you know, section of the community, and most of them are being shockingly exploited because, um, you know, it's very hard to insist on your rights uh, when you, you know, struggle to get a, a job at all. Uh, so Absolutely. the government needs to they need to address those things, and that's what you know Palm Sunday will you know will be about. And uh, said it many times, but you know the, Albanese was very quick to say you know Labor would uh, you know make sure that no one was left behind, but they have quite consciously left you know these you know these people behind, and um, so you know that's one of the things that we'll be we'll be taking up. It's you know the, one of the demands of Palm Sunday is you know permanent visas for all. Ian, thank you so much for coming onto the program. As usual, you've outdone yourself. Thank you very much. And, okay, Brenda, uh, no worries. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll talk soon. You take care. Yeah, no worries. Great. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Thanks a lot. 3CR fears are Palestinian scarves and they're a symbol of support for justice for the Palestinian people. Buying one will support the last remaining factory in Hebron that makes kafirs, and all proceeds from the sales support projects in Palestine, especially Gaza, as well as local solidarity organisations. From the traditional black and white kafir to an array of modern designs, all scarves are $35 each. Explore the range and order online, or drop by 3CR during business hours. Wear your support for the rights of Palestinians. Go to kafias.org.au. That's K-U-F-I-Y-A-S.org.au. A 3CR supporter. Time show which provides a safe environment for Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people to come onto the show and talk about 
what concerns them. And shortly we're going to be speaking with with Kieran, and he is the president of the Black People's Union, and I and I've been looking for him everywhere or someone um, from the union to talk about the voice and and to talk about some of the appalling things that are happening in you know because of colonization the do and time show does a lot of work on building the movement to stop aboriginal deaths in custody and we look at genocide and stolen generation and much more so let's welcome kieran now to the program hello how are you going hey thanks for having me on lovely to have you so I'm wondering if you could just start off by talking about saying what land you're from. Yep, so I'm from the Waniwandian clan of the Ewan Nation. Um, the Ewan Nation is up on the south coast of what's now known as New South Wales. Um, it stretches from about an hour in the north down to near the Victorian border in the south. Thanks so much. No, it's always good to start something off like that, isn't it? So yeah. let's lay it out bluntly, okay? Um Tell us about the Black People's Union and and the opposition to the voice and talk about what concerns you. Yep, so the Black People's Union, um, we're a First Nations organisation. We're run by Black Fellows for Black Fellows. Um, you know, we strive to seek uh, progress in all fields of our lives, whether it you know, be political, social, economical. Um, and, yeah, we're just out here fighting for our people. Um, around the voice in particular, though, um, we have taken up the no campaign. Um, ours isn't a conservative no, though, um, like many of the other people who are uh, out there preaching that people should be voting no on a referendum. Um, ours is because we believe that the voice of parliament just doesn't go far enough, and it's also got massive implications for stuff like our sovereignty and the future potential for us to progress further. So, I mean, we all know that there have been whole tribes wiped out through wholesale massacres. I've talked a lot about that on the show. Um, chemical warfare, locking people up. Can you talk a little bit more about, you know, how we can all unite? What what can we do instead of the voice? Yeah, so what our aim is at the Black People's Union is to actually uh, go out into communities and to try and get black fellas together, rallying together, forming one pan-Aboriginal movement. Um, and then, you know, we're under the belief that if all of our mobs can come together, and, you know, it is a massive task, it's something that we haven't actually seen here ever on this continent. Um, but if all of our mobs can actually come together, then we'll have that collective bargaining power and that collective strength to be able to actually push for more and to actually be able to enforce our sovereign rights and be self-determined people. But at the end of the day, you know, we haven't ceded our sovereignty but sovereignty and the rights associated with that only go as far as we can actually enforce them and enact them. So it's one thing for us to be, you know, sovereign people. It's a completely different thing for us to be able to have the power to act as sovereign people. And what the BPU is aiming to do is bring our mob together so we have that collective strength and power so that we can actually act as sovereign people. Absolutely. And would you say that the culture um, has been attacked through laws and legislation? Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah and like we've got, that. you know, yeah, we've got hundreds of years of history of that, you know, going right back to, you know, stuff like the white Australian policy, um, stolen generations, all of the acts and procedures and policies they brought in that forbade our people from able 
to, you know, being able to speak their language and practice their culture and their customs. Um, and even today, in terms of what's happening, um, the attacks against our culture and stuff, like you look at, for example, our children being taken by the government. You know, our children are taking a higher rate today than they were at any point during the official stolen generations policies. And it only gets worse and worse every year. Every year when they release new data, it just shows that our children are being taken at higher rate. And it's not just things like this. Um, I'll give you a perfect example. Uh, my home country up in the UN Nation, um, my home community at Rec Bay, their water supply has been polluted with PFAS by the naval base up there. Now, this has been ongoing for about three decades now, but it's to the point where my people in their home country can no longer go out into the bush and collect food. You know, we can't go fishing anymore. We can't go collecting shellfish and all of these cultural practices that have sustained us for tens or even hundreds of thousands of years. We can no longer practice because there's all this PFAS pollution in my community now and the water's not safe to drink and the food's not safe to eat. And, you know, this is just like two examples of the many ways in which they're constantly attacking our culture and attacking our people. You know, there's heaps of other things I could talk about. You know, we could talk about our world's highest incarceration rates and, you know, the deaths in custody rates associated with that and how our incarceration rates only get worse and worse each year as well. Um, you know, we could talk about stuff like the education programs um, that are in place and how, you know, we do have some successes in terms of language programs and cultural programs, but there's also so many hurdles put in place that our people have to overcome to be able to even get a glance at achieving any sort of success in these areas. So, so really, what what you say, this is? I'm so glad that you've talked about this because I mean, I'll be honest with you. Like, I've heard a lot of really, really bad radio at the moment um, for First Nations people. I am actually disgusted. I'm absolutely disgusted with the ways that some radio commentators, um, in many ways, make Aboriginal people look ridiculous who are opposed to the voice. And even ones who are not opposed to the voice. You have to be able to... We have to be able to talk about things properly and not to make everything about politics. It's got to be about grassroots. Yeah. So with that angle, can you... I just want you to, if you can, because I'm sure there's listeners that don't really know, right? Can you talk about what is the voice and, the, and, and, you know, having the Aboriginal people in the Constitution, because I know that that needs to be included, tell us what it is and then tell us about why the, the, the Black People's Union um, doesn't agree. Yep, no worries. Let's so, leave out Peter Dutton. I mean, he's irrelevant. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> so I suppose the most simplest, easiest way I can explain what the voice is, is the government is setting up this tokenistic body and at the end of the day, that's all this just a tokenistic act. It's just, you know, them giving themselves a pat on the back to say, look how good we are, look what we're doing for, you know, the black people. But at the end of the day, it doesn't actually do anything to help, you know, our everyday people out on the street. It's not going to give us any sort of power to make decisions for ourselves. We've got, you know, no right to come in and make any vetoes about any government legislation that gets made about us. We even the state itself, you know what I mean? Like, there's no actual provision in place that says the government has to listen to this voice or has to take what the voice is recommend, recommending on board. And we have had 
literally dozens of examples of similar voices before, going back well over 50 years, like, you know, going right back to the um, NAWC back in 77 to 73. It was pretty much the same thing as what they're establishing now, except back then, 50 years ago, even then they recognised that this should be something that was decided by Indigenous people. So back then, when they had the vote on this, it was only Indigenous people who could vote on this. But whereas today, they're opening up these votes to 97% of the population who aren't Indigenous, and it's just paternalism at the end of the day. It's these non-Indigenous people coming in, deciding what's best for us, as if we don't have the ability to decide for ourselves what's best for us. And, you know, it's along the lines as well of, um, you know, all the dozens of stuff that's happened in before, like the definition... Sorry, I'm rambling a bit here, but, you know, you look at the definition for insanity... Definition for insanity is trying the same action over and over again, but expecting a different result. Now, we've had well over 50 years of these things. Every single parliament since Keating has established their own Indigenous advisory body of some form or another. Um, you know, we've had stuff like the NAWC, we've had APSIC, we've had all different sorts of coalitions of Aboriginal advisory groups, and none of them have been able to actually achieve anything to help our people. You know, we're in the 21st century. We've still got some of the worst stats of the whole entire world. None of these previous advisory bodies have been able to do anything about that. But now we're supposed to believe that some new advisory body, which has just the same amount of power or even less power than some of these previous ones, is somehow going to be able to, you know, solve our situation. Some would also argue, though, that internationally, in other parts of the world like America and Sweden, I believe... Oh, sorry, Sweden, I think, has a voice, isn't it, to Parliament? Yeah. Yeah, actually, they're great ideas. Um, yeah, the Sami do have a voice over in Finland, it is, in the Finnish Finland, government. Finland, sorry. Yeah. yeah, no, that's okay. Um, yeah, over in the Finnish government. But that's another perfect example of why this wouldn't work. Because we look at what's happening over in their government, and all the time, and again, their government has way more power, this um, Sami government over in Finland, they've got way more power than what's being proposed for our voice but yet their people still have massive incarceration rates, massive homeless rates, massive you know rates of illiteracy and um, unemployment. Their government hasn't been able to solve their crisis. And their government is also constantly attacked by the mainstream Finnish government. It was only a month or two ago I was reading an article um, that listed off dozens of treaty violations that the Finnish government has made in regards to this army government over there. And again, like you look at America, they've got, you know, all of these treaties, they've got these different advisory bodies set up over in the US and in Canada. But again, you just only have to look at their stats, same as the Maldi over in New Zealand, only have to look at their stats. They're 10 times more likely to be locked up, to be homeless, to be unemployed, to be illiterate, or to be suffering some sort of chronic illness or disease. Now, treaties and voices over there haven't done anything for them to be able to mitigate these stats. Why would we think that it would do anything different here in Australia? You know, Karen, um, I wanted to, at this point, read out a quote that you... It was in a Sydney Criminal Lawyers. Do you remember doing an interview with them? Uh, yep. Oh, it was... It, it's an excellent... It really, Your voice shines through. And let me read this out, what you've said. For the average mainstream Australian, taking the voice approach to issues will create the illusion of general consent across the broader Indigenous population and paint any of us that oppose the sentiments and interests that the voice backs as radical outcasts in the eyes of the mainstream. Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. And, you know, that's just another factor. And you look at the wording the government released the other day about the voice, and this is going to be something that is going to be set up by the government of the day. So we have no guarantee that it'll even be our voices at the end of the day that end up there. And when we look at how all of these processes have gone in the past, we can be nearly certain that whatever voices do end up, you know, I'm using my little air quotes here when I say representing us, Whatever voices do end up representing us, um, how do we know that they're actually going to represent our interests and not just be some sort of parrot or echo chamber for the interests of capitalism and for the interests of the colonial government? You know, it's. I'm so happy that you've come on because I wanted. I've been wanting to talk to you for quite some time, but I also want to say one thing, and I want to see what you think. Yep. In terms of. Like this show today, you wouldn't have listened to all of it, but I've interviewed quite a few people. There was you, and the first person that I interviewed was Nicole Lee from the People with Disability Australia. I don't know whether you heard about the trans rally, the anti-trans rally. Yep. Um, that was, it was a quite terrible thing. And we were talking about Nazis, and we were talking about how there's so much hate speech to do with race, disability, homophobia, um, and then we, I interviewed Ian, and he's from the Refugee Action Coalition, and we're talking about that. So I'm wondering, like you're talking about how there needs to be an Aboriginal movement, and I quite agree. I think tribes need to unite. But how do we, how do we all unite as all peoples? How, how can we do that? Yeah, it's a, oh, look, it's not a simple answer. Um, it is a massive question, and there's a lot of different approaches that people can take. Um, something that the BPU is focused on, though, is not just uniting Indigenous people, but in you know uniting the wider proletariat, like the wider working class. Um, so you know, along those lines, we do have options for non-Indigenous allies who support our cause to come and join us to try and help with this movement, and you know to bring in their own perspectives as well. But at the end of the day, our sovereignty and our land back isn't just about the Indigenous people; it's about the entire broader working class. And the entire broader working class will only benefit from stuff like Indigenous sovereignty, self-determination and land back. That's exactly right. And it's it's a big problem, though, because all of this stuff now is, is confused with with the right-wing politics. People like, you know, yeah. One Nation and, um, you know, Liberal and, and all that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And it is hard waters to navigate, um, trying to have those conversations out in community with people because, you know, quite often you do start talking about certain words that have been co-opted lately by the right wing and a lot of people, you know, they're, they just instantly go into that sort of dismissal mode of what you're saying. So, you know, like another one, you know, sovereignty, for example, we've talked about sovereignty here for generations and generations of black folks. Now, lately we've had all these right-wing movements trying to co-opt those words to use for themselves. But, you know, the difference obviously being that when we talk about sovereignty, we're talking about Indigenous nations as communities having sovereignty. And when these people talk about sovereignty, they're talking about some far-fetched notion of individual sovereignty where they're not answerable to anyone but themselves. You know, obviously very different things, one being communal, one being individualistic. But, yeah, it is hard trying to have those conversations when a lot of our terms and phrases are being co-opted by the right. Exactly. So what you're saying basically about the voices that we've... You're saying we've had plenty of voices before 
and it's not it won't be the first indigenous advisory board government has created yeah it, yeah it won't be there's, there's been literally dozens of examples and not just indigenous but when we look at other stuff as well like royal commissions for example they carry a lot more power and a lot more authority and weight than this voice proposal has but you know how many recommendations from the royal commission to Aboriginal death in custody have been implemented you know, how many have been implemented from the Bring in the Home report into the Stolen Generation? And not just Indigenous issues, but there's been dozens of other Royal Commissions into non-Indigenous issues where, again, these recommendations just don't get implemented. And if they won't listen to their own advisory boards and their own bodies, which carry more power and weight, what hope do we have that they'll listen to us? But what can we do instead? Yeah, it's an excellent question. Um, instead... What we believe as the BPU is that our people should be working at coming together as one people and then we can have that collective strength where we can actually demand more and we can actually push for more. Now, the government has spent 200-odd years of all these divide-and-conquer tactics and, again, like you see it recently even in stuff like the Native Title Act. You know, they brought in the Native Title Act back in the 90s. Howard government reformed them all and turned them into divide-and-conquer techniques instead. But now you've got all these communities who have all these different issues with each other just simply based around the way the government set up the Native Title Act. Now, when we look at stuff like individual treaties as they're being proposed currently, and when we look at stuff like you know, these voices coming from you know, these different XYZ communities or you know, XYZ demographics, how do we know that this isn't, again, going to be some sort of continuation of these divide-and-conquer tactics that have been used against us successfully for 200 years. The only way we can possibly overcome that is by coming together as one people and one united voice, and then we can actually demand better and push for better, and we can actually, you know, push for things like self-determination because the voice isn't self-determination, and what we really have been asking for uh, for, you know, hundreds of years now since colonisation began is our own self-determination over our own affairs. And that's what the BPU is working towards by creating these united fronts between Indigenous people and creating this pan-Aboriginal movement. We're actually working towards being in a position where we can enforce our self-determination. Self-determination, yeah. Well, let's hope that, the, that this can be achieved in our lifetime because it's, it's a total mess at the moment. You know, I, I do all this stuff week in, week out, I attend inquests, you know, of Aboriginal people who have died in custody. I do the coverage. I interview families. Where's it all going to go? What's, what's going to happen in the end? Yeah, that's a high one. Um, look, nobody really knows the future, I suppose, at the end of the day. All we can do is just work towards our dreams and our goals. And I suppose at the end of the day, too, I take some sort of, um, yeah, some sort of, also, I'm looking for. I take some sort of positive notion out of the fact that even if I don't see this through in my lifetime, what we're doing here is we're planting trees, uh, planting seeds, sorry, for trees that you know we might not ever be able to enjoy the fruit and the shade of, but our kids or grandkids will be able to. Absolutely, and I'm so glad that I had you on because you know what? I've made up for the bad radio. <laughs> <laughs> Karen, thank you so much for coming on the program and, I, and I'd love to invite you back on. I hope you will. Yeah, no worries. That's a pleasure, yeah, and definitely hit me up. I'd be happy to jump on again. I'll send you the link for the podcast when it comes out.
No worries. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Take care. You too. Bye. Bye. Hi, we're the Marindas, and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM. The Black Lives Matter movement is not going away here or overseas. It gives me hope seeing the numbers of people that turn out to these Invasion Day demonstrations in Melbourne. It gives me the understanding that we will win, folks. We will succeed! You're listening to Radical Radio on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial, 3CR digital, and podcasting and streaming on 3cr.org.au. show um it's goodbye from marissa tune in every monday from four to five for the doing time show bye
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.